Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And it's Spooktober. But before we start, there is a whole glorious bunch of new patrons that we need to thank. This is what happens when we get a backlog of catalogs <laughs> of, of episodes recorded. And then no, it's we, very exciting. Come back. Yes. So, shouts out to Herbert, possibly Herbert, Richard, Sarah, <laughs> Michael, and Henry. Henri, for subscribing over at patreon.com. Richard. Oh, Desolé. Desolé. Um, and Richard. Sorry, Richard. No, um, no, no. I mean, you missed Frenchifying oh, Richard's name. gosh. That's all. Zuta Lord. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. If you want to join them and listen to me misread and or skip or double your name in thanking you, head over to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. I'm just really excited. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm so glad you're excited. I'm, I'm also the, excited, despite I'm, being incredibly tired. I'm in the caffeinated and crying phase of the year. Oh, boy. Well, I just can't believe that so many new folks are signing up. It's very exciting. And we're so close to our 100 patron mark. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. Did you say goosebumps? Yeah, because I've been like thinking about a, go- gooseberries. Oh, I thought you were talking about, like, use a beer. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> No. Belgian ales. <laughs> I think maybe I have another idea for why you have goosebumps. Goosebumps. <laughs> uh, because it's Spooktober. It's finally here. It is. My time is here. My season has come. You, you already knew that, listener, because you in the future heard that ghoulish theme tune. So let's get spooky. Mm-hmm. And so starting off this year... I had a hard time. I had a hard time approaching Spooktober this year and writing it. Well, on the one hand, it's been a tough couple of years and we I, don't want to be a bummer. I think I think that's the biggest thing is that um, life contains many horrors right now. And so a lot of things that perhaps <laughs> we don't want to contribute too much. And a lot of things that perhaps at another time, maybe things that should have never been interesting to one, um, mm. like for for entertainment. But just a lot of things. It's just it's just harder to get that that spooky high off of things um so and also chasing that spooky spooky high also i'm still a little burned by buried alive last year so so this year what i'm trying to do this fourth installment of spooktober um, wow i know right so this this year i'm trying to be a little gentler with myself and the listener we're still going to we're still following that same signature amber flavor of finding something very interesting and at the end realizing what the Oops. true monster is um but also i'm i'm going with things that i'm more interested in and interested in not only as something that i've like sort of looked into at another point in my life but things that i'm just like what's up with that so this is okay. a this is a interesting. A, a slower kinder more introspective spooktober so 
I hope that's okay with everyone. If it's not... Spooktober for hard times. We've got... If not, we've got episodes from previous years. And I might really like hit it hard next year. But for now, having said all that, the next words I'm going to say may come off (laughs) a little... Yeah. We're going to talk about um, feral children. Yep. So we're not talking... (laughs) Right. Exactly. Hang on. Hang on. (laughs) Just hold up. Hold up. Hold up. So we are not going to talk about... uh, for. For the most part, and when we do only obliquely, talk about the very real and very heartbreaking cases of actual feral children who are often just abandoned children or orphaned children. Or neglected Um, or, yeah. And so we're not going to talk about those. We are going instead to look at and think about the idea of the feral child as a trope of legend, horror, and its adjacent genres, and what that says about the audience who want to hear these stories. Thinking about, because you think about like, yeah, why do we, why do we want this? Why, why is that? We, yeah. Why is that something that we click on? Why is that something that shows up, um, that showed up before the age of clicking on things in tabloids? <laughs> why is this something that sort of kind of tickles that part in the back of our brains that make us go, ooh, ooh, just like kind of unsettling, maybe creepy. So we're going to look at that in past and recent past into present. So that's what we're doing Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And so to kind of demonstrate that that feeling of, ooh, has been around for a very long time. We'll start with some examples from the world of ancient mythology and legend, in this case, mostly from ancient Mediterranean and Western Asian folklore. We're not really going in any chronological order, just in in the order that Amber put these on the script for me to do. (laughs) (laughs) And Herodotus' histories. The season of caffeinated crying. Herodotus's histories provides our first example with a story about an Egyptian king, Semeticus, who apparently had amateur scientific inclinations. It's like, don't you have enough to do? Kinging? His overall goal was to figure out which nation or people were oldest to see if he could figure out who had come first in the known world, or at least the world as it was known to him. His reasoning was that if humans had some innate form of language, it would come from that first source, a sort of primal leftover of communicative ability. So he tested his hypothesis. And I imagine that this was he had in, in mind to to show that Egyptians were the oldest kingdom is, is what I gleaned from this. But and also... It cannot be overstated that this is from Herodotus. Right. This is a and so, like sixth hand story. Semeticus is identified with uh Samtuk, who was a Okay. Who was a pharaoh. Um but did this mm-hmm. happen? Mm. Probably, let's probably let, let's continue. It's probably not. <laughs> okay, so this is from Harvard's Center for Hellenic Studies, and it's from a paper by Rosaria Vignolo Munson in 2005 titled Black Doves Speak, colon, Herodotus and the Languages of Barbarians. Uh, I'm going to quote from that article. Semeticus isolates two infants from all cultural contexts to see what language, phonane, they will speak after they stop making meaningless noises. Uh, put a bit in that because baby babble noise is absolutely not meaningless. He places the children in a remote hut where only a shepherd is to go in and feed them milk every day by bringing his goats to them, but without ever talking to them or speaking in their presence. 
After about two years, the children greet the shepherd by clasping his knees, stretching their hands to him, and uttering their first word, bekos, which turns out to be Phrygian for bread. Faced with the recurrence of this behavior, Semeticus acknowledges that the Phrygians are the oldest people of mankind, and the Egyptians must be second. This, at any rate, is the Egyptian story. At its conclusion, Herodotus mentions and rejects as a typical idiocy a Greek variant according to which Semeticus entrusted the, ch the children not to a shepherd with goats, but to women whose tongues had been chopped off. Yikes. Semeticus emerges as relatively open-minded with regard to the question he expects the experiment to answer, being, what is the oldest people of mankind? That he tries to find this out through language, however, reveals he has already made up his mind with respect to the underlying issue, the origin of human speech. Semeticus would not proceed as he does if he did not assume at the outset that innate to all people is not merely the potential for speech and communication, but also a specific primordial language, which then turns out to him he recognizes to be Phrygian, with ready-made original words signifying what most people have in common, such as bread. Okay, well, there's, there's, I have some thoughts about that, but first let's talk very briefly about language acquisition and child development. Um, but a subject, a subject near and dear to my heart because that's what my mom teaches. So I have spent have, many, you, uh, you have genetic knowledge of it. I have ancient primordial genetic knowledge from my mommy. No, but I've, you know, when I was a kid and sometimes she'd, I didn't have school and she'd take me to class. So I just kind of sit there. So I've osmosed some things. Inevitably, I would be like, I want to juggle for your class. I'd be the intermission oh entertainment. Gosh. Look, I wanted attention. That's so cute. What an only <laughs> child. What an only child nerd. Yep. Aww. I had no control over that. The only child, I mean, I very much had a juggling face. We had to send back the rubber chickens because they scratched me across the face on my first attempt. I got rubber chickens for my birthday. Okay, let me back up. There were like a string of birthdays from like ages eight through, I don't know, 11, 12, when I got some sort of juggling accoutrement as a gift. And one year it was rubber chickens, but they were meant to be juggled like pins. And so they mm -hmm. were stiff, right? They weren't floppy rubber chickens. But they had chicken talons, like, you know, like chicken, they had like sticky outy chicken feet with pointy toes. And so on, I was like, oh, cool. And like immediately started trying to use them. And I flipped one like directly onto and into my face and it scratched like a line down my face. And my dad was like, oh, nope, going right back to the store with these. So I, I didn't have the rubber chickens, but I, I got rings. I got devil sticks, got a Diablo. <laughs> devil sticks. Gosh, I, I hope our listeners can hear my face right now. <laughs> charmed. I'm so charmed. I'm just so, so beguiled by this. Yeah. Well, I, you know, in a pinch, if I have three roundish objects, I can entertain any small child for up to three minutes. Go me. So again, child development. How do we get there? Language is a learned behavior. We, we know like this is, this is based on years and years of, of confirmed research. We don't have a genetic predisposition to speak Spanish or Japanese or English any more than we have a genetic predisposition to like one kind of music or another. We have... Or one kind of food or another. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. It's a, it's a culturally learned skill. What, what is kind of determinative of language is that we, all humans, have the ability to make around 40 different sounds with our mouths. So, you know, 
vowel sounds, consonant sounds, and vocal tracts, and these in various combinations form the phonemes of whatever language we do speak. And Anna and so will now demonstrate all 40 sounds. Sound ah. one. Ah. Sound two. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yes, and. <laughs> So a child's language skills are directly related to the number of words and complex conversations they have with others and what they hear around them. So in order to learn the relationship between sounds and objects, so to know that the sound dog means the small furry wagging thing that you love so much, right? They have to hear that sound and be shown that thing and make the association between the sound and what it symbolizes. If a child hears few words, if a child is rarely read to, sung to, or talked with, they won't have normal language development. And so children growing up in verbally and cognitively impoverished settings have speech and language delays. So this is why there, and this I've seen um, here in in Tulsa and elsewhere where I've been, um, I've seen billboards that are like, talk to your kid. Like, you know, the importance of early language reading and, and speaking and, and learning. Um, and so it's like, you know, a very heartwarming picture of like dad reading to a little baby. In more extreme situations, children neglected by their caregivers and rarely spoken with can have completely undeveloped speech and language skills. And so there's a crucial period of language learning. And if a child grows up past that point without hearing a lot of spoken language, they will have severe issues with, with communication. And so there are numerous examples from the early days of linguistics and studies of how humans learn, uh, especially in the 17 and 1800s. And a few of those that. studies, yeah, I know, <laughs> a few of those studies do have to do with feral children. So we'll get back it's to a, that. I'm just, this is I'm Chekhov's feral child. Okay. <laughs> this, this is something that is attested in the historical record. But again, we're not really dealing with these real cases, but with the mythology around the phenomenon. So let's, let's get back to the mythology. And our next example from legend is a twofer, two kids, uh, Romulus and Remus, whose story explains the founding of Rome, at least according to Roman historical propaganda. And also perhaps anti-Roman historical propaganda. Yeah. It depends how you spin the story, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to sort of report the story without much spin. Okay. I hope. <laughs> I'm just going to kind of recount the events. I mean, um, it is it is um, mythology, so there is. I'm going to yeah, but I'm going to recount the beats by, of the story. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, okay. So, like most founding myths, this story starts off in a pretty convoluted way. In fact, like most Roman and Greek myths, it's just like, woof. Romulus and Remus were twin brothers born in Alba Longa an ancient pre-Roman city back when the Latin tribes were various and numbered. What? Why did I write that? Various and Juan. numerous? Well, I. <laughs> I, I. I, I. <laughs> I, I, I. Their mother, Rhea Silvia, was a Vestal Virgin, a Westal Virgin, and the daughter of the former king, Numitor, who had been usurped by his brother. So there's a, two brothers one who had usurped the other, but the other one was kind of vying to get his power back. That'll be important later. In some sources, the twins' father was the god Mars. And and so um, Rhea Silvia was not, uh, she was a Vestal Virgin, so she um, did not have a partner. No. I mean. No. Like it was, the flame. Um, um, but Yeah, sure. The flame of Vesta. Oh, only um, the flame. I get it. 
Um, okay. That just seems like, seems relevant here. Mm-hmm. An, a, an immaculate God-related conception? Mm. Mm. Not so immaculate. The brother usurper, so not Numitor, the one who kicked Numitor out of his throne, seeing the new babies as a threat to his rule, had them kidnapped and abandoned on the bank of the Tiber River, but they were saved by the god Tiberinus, father of the river. And this is one of those things where a mm. local mm-hmm, mm-hmm, major mm-hmm. geographic figure is itself an entity or deity. Yeah. What? I'm why, just why thinking about the me? river ordeal. <laughs> I <laughs> like, the river ordeal. What a no. way that I whiffed it. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Go on. No, you learned. <laughs> Learning's great. They were then found and nursed by a she-wolf. Not Shakira, but that's always how it's referred to. As it's Shakira? No, as a female okay. wolf, a she-wolf. So also, um, curiously, um, mm, the, yes. the name for, the word for she-wolf, lupa, mm-hmm. lupa, is the same word, a very similar word, um, to a word, the word for a, se- a, a sex worker, a lady sex worker. Yeah, in Latin. Yep. Um, and, yeah, and so that's a, that's an angle to this story yeah. that also comes into play depending on whose side you're hearing the story from in the case where the she-wolf is a non-metaphorical actual uh, she brought them back to her den and raised them with her other pups until eventually they were discovered by a shepherd who adopted them and the boys grew up tending sheep with no inkling of their real identity um also quick interruption here to call your attention to something I will include in the show notes. Um mm-hmm. several years ago at this point, Flint Dibble um put together an amazing thread about how we don't nurse from non-ruminants. Yeah. And uh, and so we usually when we have milk from when we milk animals, they are generally way more difficult to milk a wolf than it is to milk a goat. Yeah. And so the biggest reason is that uh, ruminants have udders and they have um, very few nips that are used for suckling very few young at a time. And so Mm -hmm. um, animals with more nips like a wolf um, are used to having tiny babies. Lots of tiny babies that don't need to drink much at a time. So yeah, in addition they, they to like having a hard milk. time, like getting in there to, to milk a wolf. Also like babies would eat more than baby wolves. Not that I think, it, not that anyone I think is, is like debating the veracity of the story, but it's a really interesting thread. Like the practicability sort of, of all ex- of this. Exploring yeah. like milking things and what we do and do not milk. Jokes, for example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when they were young adults, uh, Romulus and Remus caught politics and they became involved in a dispute between supporters of the two king brothers who were fighting for the throne of Alba Longa. Still? It, yep. Their grandfather and great uncle. My throne. My throne. So as a result, Remus was taken prisoner and brought to Alba Longa. I guess he was like caught protesting or something. Romulus organized an effort to free his brother and set out with help for the city. During this time, they learned of their past and joined forces with their grandfather, Numitor, to restore him to the throne. Amulius, the other Finally, brother, was killed. Yeah, Amulius. And Numitor was reinstated as king of Alba. And the twins, having, having finished that, set out to build a city of their own. Uh, the brothers disagreed about which of seven hills of seven Roman hills fame to build their city on. 
and when they could not resolve the dispute, they agreed to seek the gods' approval through a contest of augury. Remus first saw six auspicious birds. Which is, like, which is what augury is. That's what augury Yeah, it's like looking for signs. Yeah. But soon afterwards, Romulus saw 12 and claimed to have won divine approval. What a brother thing to do. I mean, I wouldn't know. But like, <laughs> I saw six first. Yeah, but I saw more. They and their supporters fought a whole bunch. And in the aftermath, Remus was killed either by Romulus or by one of his supporters. Romulus then went on to found the city of Rom. Yeah, Rome. You know it. You love it. It's institutions, government, military, and religious traditions. And he reigned for many years as its first king. And so classically, it is Romulus who killed Remus, but maybe that's just sort of more dramatic, or maybe that's spin, or everything it, got smushed together I, and there's always fratricide. Or is it a... Um, brothers Brothers do be killing one. brothers. Yeah. Um, but this also could be like a rhetorical echo of um, uh, what's-his-face and what's-it. Amulius. Um, well, that's helpful. Numitor. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Indeed. Let's ponder and take a quick ad break here. And then we'll have one more wild child from ancient mythology before moving on to a more recent timeline. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K U L T U R O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster at the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. Still me. And I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) So finally, in the ancient feral child category, the story category, we've got Amber's favorite hairy wild man. Sasquatch? Thank you, do. Oh. Well, 
okay, maybe it's a toss up, but there is a, there's a callback to, to Sasquatch. So unlike our previous children, Enkidu wasn't born so much as created from sort of whole cloth. And arguably, yes, people who are born are also created, but what? in oh, resp- God. well, you know, no, he was, not. he was kind of poofed into existence. Yeah. So in response to the people of Uruk's complaints about their super abusive and tyrannical king Gilgamesh, the goddess Aruru creates Enkidu in the steppe. Abundantly hairy and primitive, Enkidu lives roaming with the herds and grazing and drinking from rivers with the beasts. Sounds great. Yeah, and so he was he was created to be um, a match to Gilgamesh, yeah. to kind of mm-hmm. get Gilgamesh in a check. foil. Yeah. So in another departure from previous stories, the thing that civilizes Enkidu and makes him more man than beast is sexual healing, baby. This is from a piece on Aeon by Sophus Helle. When Gilgamesh hears about this wild man, he orders that a woman named Shamat be brought out to find him. Shamat seduces Enkidu, and the two make love for six days and seven nights, transforming Enkidu from beast to man. His strength is diminished, but his intellect is expanded, and he becomes able to think and speak like a human being. Shamhat and Enkidu travel together to a camp of shepherds, where Enkidu learns the ways of humanity. And presumably sheep. Eventually, Enkidu goes to Uruk to confront Gilgamesh's abuse of power, and the two heroes wrestle with one another, only to form a passionate friendship. But we're mostly talking about Enkidu here. So I read a couple articles about this, and I thought this part was very interesting. So Shamhat invites Enkidu to Uruk twice. The first time is after he's been with her for just a week. And Enkidu replies that he will indeed come to Uruk, but not to befriend Gilgamesh. He will challenge him and usurp his power. And Shamhat goes, oh no, uh, and urges Enkidu to forget his plan and instead describes the pleasures of city life, music, parties, and beautiful women. And he's like, okay. And after a second wink of TLC, Shamhat invites Enkidu to the city again. This time she dwells not on the king's bullish strength, which had been the first selling point, and Enkidu went, yeah, I'll take him, but on Uruk's civic life. Quote, where men are engaged in labors of skill, you too, like a true man, will make a place for yourself. End quote. And so Shamhat tells Enkidu that he is to integrate himself in society and find his place within a wider social fabric. And Enkidu agrees, the woman's council having struck home in his heart. So between these two kind of vignettes, it's clear that Enkidu kind of experiences a change in perception. The first week of sex might have given him the intellect to converse with Shamat, but he still thinks in animal terms. He sees Gilgamesh as an alpha male to be challenged. After the second week, he's become ready to accept a different vision of society. Social life is not about raw strength and assertions of power, but also about communal duties and responsibility. And, uh, Hella kind of wraps up by saying, placed in this gradual development, Enkidu's first reaction becomes all the more interesting as a kind of intermediary step on the way to humanity. So what does this tell us? We learn two main things. First, that humanity for the Babylonians was defined through society. Second, and I couldn't agree more, we learn that humanity is a sliding scale. (laughs) After a week of sex, Enkidu has not become fully human. There is an intermediary stage where he speaks like a human, but thinks like an animal. Even after the second week, he still has to learn how to eat bread, drink beer, and put on clothes. I can't help but think of that scene from Beauty and the Beast, where the beast learns table manners. 
In short, becoming human is a step-by-step process, not an either-or binary. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that, Anna. Thank you. Um, So, there are plenty of other people raised by animal stories out there. um, And uh, something that I saw and I I see now that around the same time that I was finding it, someone saw this on Twitter and tweeted about (laughs) it. Um, If you go to Wikipedia, they have sort of on the the list of feral, like uh, stories of feral children, um, they have like a list of, you know, raised by wolves, raised by dogs, raised by ostriches, raised by, you know, all these various things. And then the last I want to know more about the ostriches, frankly. Uh, I mean, I could tell you about it. But the last mm. one was um, raised by the French. <laughs> Notable animals, the French. Ah, uh-huh. um, and it just tickled me. Um, so some of the other stories include um, in the Shahnameh which is the Persian epic poem in which the hero Zal is raised by a phoenix. Cool. And um, very significantly in Ibn Anafi's 13th century Arabic sci-fi novel, um, in which the protagonist is a self-taught feral child, uh, uh, our little autodidact, um, which itself is a response to the 12th century Arabic novel, Hay Ibn Yaqdan. So Hay Ibn Yaqdan means alive, son of awake. And that's was, such a cool, that's that cool. Was his, that was his name. Yeah. I know. It's awesome. Um, I just like it. So, and it was profoundly influential in Islamic philosophy and eventually in the Enlightenment when a European found it, who could read it. Um <laughs> And so oh. I've I've seen it ranked as the third most translated Arabic text ever. Anna, do you know the other two? I'm guessing one's the Quran. One's the Quran and the other one is? I'm sure I will go, oh, when you tell if me. If I say its name in Arabic, will you know it? Maybe. Elf Lela Walela. No, but I love that. A Thousand and One Nights. Oh. So those yep. are the two big ones. Um, so Ennit, hi. Um, who he grows up as the only human on an island. He's sort of sui generis. He just sort of appears one day. Um, and he observes and learns from the world around him, becoming highly knowledgeable in matters of nature, science, philosophy, and astronomy. So he, he watches the birds and the animals and he learns their behaviors and their, and their songs. And so he's just sort of observing everything and and learning and watching the stars. So he reaches the conclusion over the course of his childhood um, and early adulthood that there must be a creator responsible for everything in his world uh, because it's just so, so wondrous and there's just so much to learn. Um, So eventually he encounters other people and he's able to teach others and he sort of goes to, to, where other people are and they learn from him and he sort of lives as a a very wise Sufi. So if you're familiar at all with the Enlightenment, it probably seems plausible how the ideas put forward by Hay Ibn Yaqdan and its contemporaries may have influenced it. So the Age of Enlightenment began in the 17th century and ran through the 18th century in Europe and North America. So this was a time of big radical ideas in which monarchies and the Catholic Church saw considerable challenges as ideas about individualism, liberty, reason, natural rights, and the separation of church and state started gaining traction. So And they went, yeah, and so, um, yeah. If you are familiar with the French Revolution or the American Revolution and yeah, all of those, those, those guys, um, mm-hmm. enlightenment types. Yep. So 
amid all the thinking and therefore being and all the pursuit of liberty, (laughs) something else was happening. People were thinking about wild children and savages. Um, And I mean, I'll get to what I mean by savage here. I'm not saying it's a better word, but it's not quite what we might think of as savage when we're talking about sort of anthropological topics. So take, for example, the girl found in Champagne in September 1731, who became the subject of literature, scientific inquiry, and gossip for decades, nay centuries to come. So this is from, um, reading from an article by um, a literature person, what do we call this? Literature Critic? scholar? God. Okay. 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 Um, so, so from... Um, literature person. Literature person, uh, Julia Duthwaite, who uh, this article is, is and um, a later book that she published on expanding on this topic is in the show notes, reading, quote, The wild girl was first sighted one evening in an orchard near the village of Songyi, where she was stealing apples from a tree. Her feet were bare and she wore only rags and skins on her small black body, but she was armed with a short club. The villagers set loose upon her a bulldog, which she killed with one blow before scaling the tree and swinging, branch to branch, back into the woods. The village nobleman, Monsieur Dépinay, ordered that she be caught. A townswoman succeeded by tempting her down from a tree with a pail of water and an eel. Uh, so maybe she was British. <laughs> Once confined on the Depinay estate, the girl, who appeared to be anywhere from 10 to 18 years old, according to different sources, amazed her captors by skinning and eating a rabbit uncooked and devouring a chicken in the same way. After several washings, her skin came white. Her huge thumbs and long, tough fingernails were a source of astonishment, as were her sharp, piercing cries. She escaped several times and surprised the villagers with her unusual flying run, strong swimming, and imperviousness to the cold. To avoid further escapades, Monsieur Diapinet, in cooperation with the Bishop of Chalon and the Intendant of Champagne, who was the provincial governor, placed the wild girl in the municipal in the municipal hôpital général at Chalon, where she was baptized. Called the Shepherd's Beast on the Diapinet estate, she was henceforth named Marie-Angélique Mimi Leblanc. Her predilection for tree climbing and swimming, like her fondness for raw frogs and rabbit blood, was immediately discouraged. Forced to eat the institutional fare, she soon lost her teeth, which together with her fingernails were preserved as curiosities. Oh, no. More serious consequences followed. Her once robust health, weakened by the cooked diet and sedentary lifestyle at the Hôpital and later at convents in Chalon in Paris, was permanently damaged. Under the nun's care, however, Marie-Angélique was gradually humanized. She learned the French language and Catholic dogma along with needlework and domestic tasks. Once she became fluent enough to answer questions, her interrogators were able to piece together part of her past. She had apparently been roaming, roaming the Champenois countryside at the comp- in the company of another savage girl, living off raw fish, frogs, rabbits, and roots, and taking shelter in trees. They communicated using gestures, grunts, and whistles. After a dispute over a trinket, some claim it was a rosary, Marie-Angélique wounded her companion with her club. She had run off to fend for herself when she was discovered in the apple orchard near Songy. End quote. So huh. this this article 
as I said, was is in the show notes, goes on to outline um, contemporary theories. So at the time uh, regarding the, the girl that was baptized Marie Angelique. Um, and her origins. So there's an account of somebody coming to town with um, cassava and manioc and her being excited about it and eating it really happily. So they assume that since she enjoyed eating that, she must be indigenous and from the Caribbean. Um, Sort of harkening back to what I piped up about how we don't have, there isn't like an inborn... um, Oh, preference for, for preference food? for a specific type of food or a specific language or a specific mm-hmm. um, technology of eating. The cooking the, versus not like cooking, no, or? like like old theories about like people using forks versus chopsticks oh. and like those kind yeah, of okay. ideas. Like that's not mm-hmm. something that you are born able to do. Um, so Certainly others not. took her propensity for swimming in cold water, pale skin, and taste for raw fish as evidence that she was Inuk from what's today the maritime provinces. So another part of the French empire. Um, Mm -hmm. Either way, she was from elsewhere and a French subject because she was from a uh, subjugated and sort of controlled population, whether it be from far North, Northern North America or the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. Um, She also was included in Carl Linnaeus's taxonomy. So Marie Angelique was um, was added along with two other European cases of feral children, both of whom were boys that I'll mention a little bit. Um, And they were part of Homo ferris. So we have um, at the time we had. Well, I hope it was a Homo sapiens, Homo ferris, Homo monstorum. Monstorus. Yeah. And and I think. Linnaeus even subdivided the Homo sapiens into well, yeah, quote he, unquote yeah. races, but but this was yeah, this was a separate category. So yeah. so she was so she was not she was not human. She was right, She's not Homo hominid. Sapiens. She was outside, but of she that. was yeah. so she was a different species. She was something altogether, and um, also so they were described very very simply. These these other species, um, quad, quadrupedal, unable to speak. And hairy. Okay. So those were those are their qualities. That's that's how mm-hmm. you can identify these species. Um, Anna, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, Linnaean thought because I got the sense. Well, okay. So I want you. I would like if if you can, and I think you can, um, to kind of catch up our listeners because I had to, as somebody who has not given a lot of thought to sort of like the history of um, taxonomy and evolution and thoughts around it, that mm-hmm. corner of the history of science, um, this is well before the origin of species. And this is well before ideas mm-hmm. about descent. So his, and, and so he believed that species were created and sort of mm-hmm. static and that it's not as though that that it's not as though she was and other instances of Homo ferris were a like a missing link or anything yeah, like or that. Any it was kind just of like something offshoot. else. Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. is that right? Yeah. And so like to go to go all the way back to the basics of Linnaean thinking, it's it's an effort to catalog all life on Earth, dividing things into nested categories. 
And so there are the, the broadest categories, kingdom. And so that's, for example, all animals and animals are defined as having certain traits. And then as the categories get smaller and smaller, not only do they fit into the larger categories, but the characteristics become more and more specific. Yeah, his designation of these children as homo ferris means that they belong, like he, he recognizes that they belong to the same category as humans, the same sort of, the same genus, the same yeah. next, the same next smallest category the second smallest to humans, but he has termed them other by giving them a different species name. He has excluded them from humanity. Yeah. And I think her species name was, uh, Puella, uh, Camp Campanus. She was just like the champ champagne girl. Oh yeah. Like that's but, yeah. yeah. Campanaris but, being champagne. But, but, not that much of a coincidence here. So nope. um, if we consider the story of Marie Angelique, also we can think about her name like Marie Angelique Mimi LeBlanc. Like it's she was given a like she was given just like a super French, super Catholic name. Speaking to her, her innocence and her um, that she Purity? was sort of she would. Yeah, she was more like purely human because she was not like spoiled by. Like the harsh world. By like, the and, degradations of civilization. Yeah. And so um, Mimi was the the name of her godfather oh, who okay. was involved in the convent somehow. And okay. LeBlanc, it was given to her as like further expression of her purity and whiteness, but also it's a super common French name. So she was given, she was sort of given this mantle of like ordinary French femininity to which she was expected to conform. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. So if we were to consider her story in the context of the Enlightenment, so during the time that her story uh, both occurred and picked up popularity, um, she provided a tantalizing example of the state of nature. So part of uh, philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau's ideas about the pure primitive man. So he talks about um, a natural man, and the idea of of what becomes sort of the noble savage, my understanding is that it's distinct from what the trope ultimately became of somebody not 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 ruined by by civilization, but that there's just this like not that sense uh, that that like is a really insidious sort of and like persistent the, trope. The core nugget of of humanness. He was so Rousseau was like kind of operating in a intellectual community at a time where people were trying to understand what we are underneath all of our society and civilization and like what the essence of humanness is really like. Because again, this is before we, b before sort of the science of developmental psychology was happening. And so the, or the idea even of people didn't know about um, the development of urbanization and, and things like that, that is sort of thinking that they were thinking that there was this sort of essence, like the essence of human as Adam was just when he was <laughs> terrible perfume, when, when he was formed out of, mm -hmm. out of the dirt, like thinking like, what was Adam? That kind of idea. Um, okay. So they knew that we are distinct from animals Um because we can be improved upon. Yeah. So it's the idea of perfectibility. So humans, um, according to Rousseau and others, have this capability to 
to choose to do things to improve our condition. Think about- Which implies a wildly subjective view of, of what is improvement. Well, and also think back to um, a live son of awake and think about his idea of that he was just on his own. And just because his like the human spirit within him was to. And this is also, as I understand, and I have extremely limited knowledge about this. And so I'm still going to talk about it. Um, but um, in in Sufi thought. And in, in a lot of Islamic thought, there is the idea of striving towards God and striving towards sort of the creator and perfection and that we have it within us. That's part of it's a sort of it's not quite the same as free will, but it's it's sort of we have it within us to do good and to improve. And so that is that is something that kind of comes through in enlightenment thought that they pull from Islamic philosophy. And so um, Marie Angelique was was human. She was able to transform from a wild club swinging carnivore to a demure, religiously observant woman. Um, never mind that she lost all her teeth and was depressed and sick. European feral boys, such as Peter, Peter of Hanover, I think it was Peter from Hanover. There, there are, there were a few cases, um, in the 17th and 18th centuries during like high point of the enlightenment of feral children who were boys, including Caspar Hauser, who was possibly just a, altogether a hoax of his own design of boys who um, followed different trajectories where their civilization resulted in education, autonomy and celebrity um, because they were able to learn to speak and walk around and wear cute clothes and, and like be charming. They were examples they were taken as as evidence or proof of this perfectibility that they were the natural man or natural or wild girl that could be civilized i'll also include um so another article from a sort of a literary angle that that plays with these ideas of enlightenment and our more bestial beginnings and so he pulls into it the idea of sasquatch and these sort of like crypto beings that are almost human and sort of on the the in the uh, the flip side of that are these feral children who are almost animal. And so it's that that sort of blurring the lines and using the negative to sort of negatively constructing an identity. Like if we if we name what isn't human, we are as a result define just like explaining what is human. Um yeah, so it's, it's distillation of yeah of yeah like defining humanity yep. yeah um and so i i think that ideas of perfectibility and improvement through civilization persist today even if they take different forms and have different sort of vocabularies and modalities um but i decided like 10 months ago that i wanted to do a spooktober episode on feral children it was the first one i thought of um because there's always been something about the sensational stories that grab our attention and kind of make us shudder um and so as i mentioned up top many of the stories of feral children originate in abuse neglect or other forms of significant trauma but as i was reading through cases of children raised by x animal or the french I couldn't help but notice that they kept appearing in um, colonial states, 
in um, post-Soviet or post-communist states, kind of after the fall. So -hmm. you see a lot in um, rural Russia or Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan or Romania. You see them in South Africa, Uganda, the Andes. Like So in these these places that are colonized, that are sort of colonized spaces and spaces of kind of civilizing projects are happening. Especially Uh, where there's like an imbalance of political power. Yeah. And so on the one hand, sure, they're like in spaces like that and times like that, there are there is an increase in instability that can result in these very sort of material expenses, experiences of harm and trauma. Like, but also these stories are getting picked up and publicized and spread around. That didn't sit right with me. So I kept reading. Um, and And now we have an episode (laughs) and in doing so um, I I came across a dissertation written by Depika Nath entitled Feral Disorders and Colonial Exclusions Animal Reared Feral Children Discourses of Animality and the Treatment of Animals in Colonial India isn't that kind of cool when you realize you have the same idea as someone who like kept going with that idea it's like you kind of feel like a solidarity of I thinking with it. Isn't that yeah. Neat? So I have, I love, I feel so validated by that because I yeah, never think exactly. that I'm like, I, I, I've met people who think that they're the first person who thought of something. <laughs> um, and they aren't. Oh, it's usually. like my dad with the pretzel cone. <laughs> um, but like, I usually don't because I recognize, like, I know enough about a few things to know that there is so much to know. And there are so like many how could you possibly tra- be the yeah. first person? I was like, of course right. I'm not. Like the probability so of that. I um so in this, um, Dupika Nath investigates the stories of feral children in colonial India. One of the stories discussed is that of Mo of it's it's Mowgli. Oh. Because what in I mean, unless unless British people say cow differently, do they say coo? Uh in the in the Highlands of Scotland they say coo. Oh no, brown co. Um, <laughs> oh so no, he's, brown co. Yeah, so um, Richard Kipling <laughs> said that it rhymed with cow. Oh, so it's Mowgli. Cowgly. Cowgly, yeah. Um, so so Mowgli, sure. who was a boy who was raised by animals and went to civilization and it didn't vibe with him, so he went back, right? Is that what happens? Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> Um, and and so through it, it's all the stories of like the animals in his life and what they teach him and all this stuff. Um, so that's one that's one of the stories that Nath covers. Um, and it's all very it's all very interesting and very compelling, especially when you get into ideas of treatment of animals um, and sort of narratives around that. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a different story. So see, okay. I, I did mention Mowgli. I'm, you Mowgli. did. Mowgli. Um, but I'm still going to have bare necessities stuck in my head for the rest see, of the day. I, I'm not burdened with that. Like that's, nah. I grew up well, watching David Attenborough. Um, so, I, mean, I did too, but also. No, exclusively. So okay. um, one such story begins on October 9th, 1920, when Joseph Singh, rector of an orphanage in Bengal, went out with a group of local men searching for a ghost man that was said to live among a pack of wolves. They said that ghost they, man. Yeah, they said that um, 
It was this being that had sort of the limbs and body of a man, but the head of a ghost. And it was just like, and he's like, I'm a good Christian man. This is nonsense. Let's go out and find it. And they're like, oh, we couldn't possibly. Weird, but superstitious tribesmen. And so they went out and it was like in an anthill. They saw it. And so, I don't know. They they lived in an anthill. Oh, like a flock, but not not ant occupied. I think, yeah, I think this might be one of the structures that some some species of ants create that they don't I, always live in forever. I caught up yeah, after not, I yeah. opened my full mouth. Not an ant hole. So according to his diary, <clears throat> close after the cubs came the ghost, a hideous looking being, hand, foot and body like a human being. But the head was a big ball of something covering the shoulders oh, and the no. upper portion of the bust, leaving only a sharp contour of the face visible. And it was human. Close at its heels, there came another awful creature exactly like the first, but smaller in size. Their eyes were bright and piercing, unlike human eyes. I, saying, at once came to the conclusion that these were human beings. End quote. So these human beings were, in fact, two young girls who would be named Amala and Kamala. So Amala, he so he took them back to his orphanage. Amala died in 1921. Um, this cause of death stated as a kidney infection. But Kamala lived on until her death from tuberculosis in 1929. So she had been sick well, for about a year. They didn't live that long. But, not but they, not yeah. that long. But yeah, long enough. So during that time, according to Singh, um, they wouldn't allow themselves to be dressed. They scratched and bit people who tried to feed them. And they I had these. Why? They had Jeez, these like all these of a sudden long, snatched from their homes. So they had these long claws and these sharp teeth and they rejected mm. cooked food and they walked on all fours. Um, and so both girls had developed thick calluses on their palms and their knees from having walked on all fours. Uh, they were mostly nocturnal. Um, they didn't like sunshine and they had excellent night vision. Um, they also, in their, their wolfy way, they exhibited an acute sense of smell and an enhanced ability to hear. So Singh hmm. took, on, took on the task of civilizing them. And after Amala's death, Kamala was very withdrawn and appeared to be in mourning, which he yeah, went right well, upon. And, like the one person that you've known your whole life is now dead Gone. like of course yeah. but eventually she came around to human company um and he said that she, by the when she fell ill in 1928 by that time she had begun to walk upright more um and was you know becoming a human girl so a french surgeon and sleuth um named serge Arrault, um published a book in 2007 that investigated and often thoroughly debunked several stories of feral children, including that of Kamala. According to Arol, Singh wrote that diary in 1935, six years after her death. And the manuscript is in like the Library of Congress in the manuscript section. So, huh. Um, you can go check it out if yeah. you want. Yeah, and so and photos of the wolf the the wolf, so photos of the wolf girls wolf girling um, date to 1937, and and feature other girls so because eight they had years after after the the second sister Kamala had died. died. Yeah, yeah. So it featured other girls from that village uh, posing as they had been instructed to do. Um, there were other things that that 
um, Errol published around, um, there was reliable testimony that he actually um, punished Kamala in order to get her to perform, to do like wolf girl things for audiences. There was a financial interest um, expressed in the story. I mean, so this is essentially kind of a sideshow sort of situation. Um, Yeah. And also if he is taking on this like great and noble task of civilizing a feral child, that's a great way to get um, the wider benevolent christian community oh yeah in money. colonial india to give money to mm-hmm. um the the orphanage so the, there's so there's quite a bit of reason uh, to believe that there was some financial incentive to keep the story going and the girls were almost certainly exploited um it's also thought um now based on sort of i i, I the the, the way the that medical and stuff. the way the medical professionals can like look at can can like examine like Diagnose descriptions from, and things to kind of yeah. get a sense and so it's thought sure. that she had um, Rett syndrome um, which is a genetic neurodevelopmental disorder that had not been identified yet at the time I think it was identified first in the 60s and it's something that's carried on the X chromosome and okay. usually biological males die shortly after birth if they have it so usually surviving people with it um, are uh, biologically female yeah and so um this story i look at most things kind of questioningly just by nature um and so seeing all of these stories that are kind of conveniently in places in sort of spaces of like contested civilization by kind of the global north Um, a colonial power coming in partially to civilize yeah. A less civilized people and then also conveniently, wow, look at all these resources they have. Yeah. And so thinking about um, these ideas of the less humanness of colonial subjects that, you know, they are they are just, you know, a stroke of bad luck away from just being raised by wolves. That's and that's something that was especially true among people who were in low castes or in tribal communities. It's kind of seen as evidence for the necessity of colonial rule. Like, well, we need to be here because we need to help them. Um, and that's something that I think still persists, this idea of like, well, we have to help them. Um, and and so the idea is that those people, um, in big scare quotes, abandon their children because like, oh, well, she had a disability. She They must have just abandoned her and let her be raised by animals. Or, you know, people, the, the stories of like the the mother, the mother abandoned the, the child with a like, a step parent who was mistreating like those ideas of these like undesirable characters who should it to parent. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's something that we even hear in um, the highly contemporary discourse around asylum seekers in the U S and, and elsewhere um, of people trying to come to the global North and this idea of like, well, look at these, the, these, situations in which people are putting their children we have to help them um and so that's something that this kind of smacked of when i started reading and then seeing like these stories and exploring these stories and finding out that these stories like are actually some of them are categorically untrue yeah um was very interesting 
So as promised, I didn't go into great detail or volume um, regarding cases of children found in what one might call the wild. Like Um, actual cases. Yeah. 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 So the simple fact of a vulnerable person not having access to safety is a terrible thing. And I take no pleasure in reading about it, much less sharing that with our listeners. Yeah, we're certainly not going to use those stories as entertainment. Yeah. And in an indirect way, profiting from it. So to end the episode... Thank you. Um, To end this episode, I want to give a nod to a piece in The Guardian by a freelance journalist named Marianne Oshoda, who asks the question, wild stories. Why do we find feral children so fascinating? Um, And she says, quote, when you start to assess multiple feral child cases, you're struck by certain recurring tropes. Some point to how a child ended up in such a drastically inhumane situation, namely family breakdown, violence, alcoholism or drug addiction, political or social unrest in the country. Some features demonstrate the myriad ways the human body can adapt, hardening skin, coarsening hair and motor skills honed to survive, environmental exposure and a lack of safe places. But other features tell us more about ourselves and society than they ever will about the so-called feral child. We're fascinated by creatures that crawl the line between somewhere between human and animal, between natural and unnatural, between civilized and wild. By defining the feral, we define the normal. That's why these stories capture our imaginations. The next time a feral child case hits the news, see how many of these features are mentioned. It's like tragic story bingo. And then she outlines these tropes. Um, Give me those tropes. And then at the end, she kind of falls in because she she gives the whole idea of like something that we talked about very recently and you and I talk about frequently around the idea of like raising a child with a disability is a is a modern convenience or a modern luxury, I think is the the phrase that she uses that like that, uh, you know, places people who are in like under considerable resource stress like can't can't. or won't do. Yeah. And like that's. Uh, so uh, that's why I say <laughs> freelance <laughs> journalist, not <laughs> someone. With, so not an I, archaeologist. I think that it's um, so speaking further to the importance of getting um, getting this work into the mouths of p- popular journalists. But yeah, that notwithstanding, the tropes are give me trope one. The feral child makes the sounds of an animal. And so that this is an idea of like, oh, ah, this no chi- language development. Well, this chi- this this boy thinks he's a chicken. He clucks like a chicken. Um, making is the that, sounds of is there, is there is there a story? Oh, there was a story about that. Okay. Um, so making the sounds of an animal does not mean you think you are that animal. It could mean that you are mimicking you the to, sounds of the things yeah, that have been around communicating. you. Communicating. Yeah. yeah. Um, it doesn't mean that you are speaking chicken. It means that you are. Making chicken sounds. He's, I mean, I can do that. Yeah. And so trope two, the feral child is covered in hair. So if you don't have access to haircuts or hairbrushes or, you know, somebody to braid your hair or somebody to comb your hair, like that kind of stuff or wash your hair, like it will it can get matted it can get long it can look like we have like there's so many there's so much 
like politics, and there are people who are far better positioned to talk about it than I am, about sort of the politics of hair and like kemptness of hair. And so this is something that, this is something that comes through in these stories that sort of yeah. others them more. Trope mm-hmm. three, they have claw-like nails, sharp teeth, and staring eyes. I mean, the nails thing, I get. You, if you don't have, yeah, if you don't have like a manicurist, um, you... Or even a set of clippers. Yeah. Or, yeah, you, or you are using your nails so you aren't chewing them off, you know, that, that kind of thing. Like, yes, um, the sharp teeth is, it, is, is a subjective, <laughs> it is subjective. Um, and, also, and also, like in, in real cases, if you are trying to remove a, a real child from what they perceive as their home, their, like their safe space, maybe they bite you. Yeah. And then also the thing about staring eyes, um, there are, um, if you do not have, so things like eye contact are highly contingent on one's like, um, socialization. Like Mm -hmm. it's something that you see across cultures. Like there's some cultures that are, we, like you and I live in a like big eye contact culture, but not too big. I'm not great at it. (laughs) Like, so, and then there are other people for whom, like making a direct eye contact, perhaps with people who are older than you, or yeah, or people very of, rude, like people of another gender, that's seen as confrontational or mm-hmm. um, or something. And so these are things that if they don't know not to look at you because they haven't been playing the same game as you this whole time, they may seem staring. Also, if this is some, if, if we're dealing with someone who has a cognitive disability or um, a, like a developmental disability, they, they may not be taking in stimuli the same way that you are. And so they may be looking at things longer. They may be, so it's, it's all, it's all stuff to make things that may make an observer uh, it was sort of an uninformed observer feel weird. Yeah. Um, but it's just a, this is just a vulnerable they're, person they're, who is. Yeah, they're coming is, from their own social. Who, yeah. Who works. Context. Who moves through the world differently than you. Yeah. Um, and then trope four, the feral child can't eat cooked food. Typically, these kids are taken to hospitals. They're taken to um, a, a children's home. They're taking to spaces that are very different, very clinical, very scary. And they probably it's 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 not uncommon for people in very scary, traumatic Stressful. spaces to refuse food. So they, so it's not that they can't, it's that they, they they won't eat. They They, won't. Or they don't, they, maybe they don't know that it's food because like it smells weird to them. And so it's, it's not that they can't eat cooked food. It's not that they are sort of out there being carnivores. It's sort of. Because we know from other studies that, that when not in a threatened space, animals presented with some different food options have preferences like yeah this isn't them being closer to animal or closer to nature these are kids who are scared and so that's when these stories come up of like oh they they found a monkey girl and and these ideas it's like well no she doesn't want to live off bananas like she is scared because she is a small child who has who has experienced trauma full stop we don't know you may not know what other what else is going on with her um and And who's reacting to it yeah and so at the heart of it contemporary stories of so-called 
feral children are usually stories of children with disabilities or complex trauma, if not both. Once again, dear listeners it. and fans of Spooktober, we have, done it. Found, we have found the monster in my episode and it's looking back at us in the mirror. So Oops. these stories seem to have a long history of being resonant, but for different reasons to different populations. And I hope we, we, I hope we explored that. I hope we set you on this path. That was really interesting. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I want, I didn't want it to be scary. <laughs> no, it, it, it's, it's a really interesting thing to think about and explore, but I think you did a really good job of, of not just sort of making it a slog through trauma. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't think that helps anyone. No, and and it's certainly a, a real fact that you know historically this has happened to real real people. But thinking about why we are so titillated by by the stories and why, especially when these cases were first becoming uh, popular in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries in Europe, why people went oh yeah, and why there was another wave of them um, yeah. in the. Up through the the in the nineteenth and the twentieth centuries, and today mm-hmm. they Still, look different. Yeah. Listeners, I hope I hope you like this, and I hope that you are excited for three more weeks of being. What's up with that? What's up with that? Is yeah. what's up. <laughs> so well, in the meantime, find us on social media. Anna, how do they yeah. do that? You can do that in a number of ways. You can find us on Facebook, where we're just the Dirt Podcast. You can find us on Twitter, at Dirt Podcast. And you can find us on Instagram, at The Dirt Pod. And then all of that together is over at thedirtpod.com, as are all of our past episodes and other stuff, like our Patreon. And like, uh, you could sponsor an episode of your very own topic, but not during Spooktober. Those slots are taken. They sure are. That's going to do it. Thanks, bud. Well, great script. Thanks. Great yeah. script to you, too. And great script to you, listener. Uh, and also to you. <laughs> um, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll see you next week for more Spooktober. Yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Count Dorkula. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.